VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The rate of change today is so much faster than it was in the 1980s. Yeah. So I don't think it's going to take 25 years to see this become more ubiquitous. I think it's more like five to 10. I mm. think as people see that the technology actually can scale, that there are viable business models where the carbon impact is significantly less in an environment where consumer brands are putting out really aggressive targets around carbon neutrality. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How's everybody doing this fine day? I am doing fantastically. It's almost Halloween, which is crazy. The clocks are about to go back in a few weeks. Winter will be upon us soon. So why not talk about skis? But not just any skis. Algae skis, that's right. There's a very cool company um, called Checker Spot, and they're based in Alameda, which is right next to me here in Oakland, California. And what they're doing is using precision fermentation to produce oils from algaes that are then used in a whole bunch of products, including Wonder Alpine, their line of skis, snowboards, etc. And what they're doing is basically taking all of these petroleum-derived plastics, polymers, products, etc. that are used to make skis today and replacing them with algae-based alternatives. And Checker Spot's interesting because we've talked a lot on this pod about the kind of coming synthetic biology revolution. And synthetic biology being this ability to effectively engineer cells to produce products. And it's a very exciting time, but we're at the stage where currently there still aren't that many products in the market. There's been lots of companies trying for years, even decades, kind of honing their processes, figuring out the science. It's very difficult. And now we're finally at the cusp of this kind of new age where we're going to start to see some of this stuff make it out into the market, make it out into the real world, which is a big deal, especially when you think about um, climate impacts and replacing swathes of the economy that have been produced one way for decades or even a century or more. Um, so the kind of new age of the bioeconomy, synthetic biology, it's a really big idea. And Checker Spot is one of those companies that's really kind of out at the front of this curve. So I headed over to their place in Alameda this week to sit down with Charles Dimmler. He's their co-founder and CEO to talk about what they're up to, how far they have got 
the kind of the lessons he learned at Solozyme, which is where he was before, and that was one of the main first-generation synthetic biology companies that didn't quite live up to his promises. So now he's having a go with his own company, Checker Spot. So I took a little tour, saw the whole facility. It was very cool. Saw like the little powders that that are then turned into the algae oils and everything else. It's very cool. And then we sat down in a nice little corner office with the sunshine coming through the windows. I was on a very comfortable couch. And we talked about all things skis, synthetic biology, and the future of the world and the universe. Kind of. Anyhow, you're going to really enjoy this one. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Charles Dimmler of Checker Spot. Enjoy. So I saw the whole lab. We ended with the skis. So can we talk about like the skis? Because I think that's an easy way for people to understand the very nitty gritty cool science that's happening here. But everybody understands ski and what it is so what are you guys doing and how is it different well i wonder about that in the sense (laughs) that i'm not sure everybody does Mm. understand a ski and what it is and and here's what i mean by that i'm 47 years old i've been skiing now for 40 years and i went back in 2015 to do a ski building workshop and the reason that i did it was because i was just captivated by a product that in an industry that clearly markets performance materials mm-hmm. I'm like what what goes into that how how are skis actually built and did you do this because you're like a scientist slash engineer slash i don't know what exactly your background is but you were just curious of like how stuff is made and you wanted to see that up close i'm not a scientist but i studied a lot of science when i was yeah. uh, in college and I've been in the biotechnology industry for my entire career. So I'm really curious about hmm. science, but not to the point where I'm in the lab. Yeah. Um, I wasn't a good scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the, the straightest way to put it. Yeah. But I do find myself going down rabbit holes and getting yeah. really curious about certain things. And, and this, is, this is one of them. And when I did the ski building workshop, I realized that there's a lot that goes not only into the materials, mm. but into the manufacturing process itself that um, delivers a product where there's an expectation from consumers and users yeah. for performance. And that was illuminating to me. And it was illuminating at a time in, in my career and in my life when I was thinking a lot about where materials come from. Mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about the fact that there are these very real externalities with petroleum and considering that we had in hand from past experience an alternative to petroleum that we knew because it had been done scales Mm. and we knew because it had been done um, could be manufactured at an attractive cost structure. And so the question then became, well, if the world's economy runs on carbon if it runs on petroleum yeah there are hundreds of thousands probably millions of products that come from petroleum where do you start yeah like what do you tackle first right and yeah that that was lingering in the back of my mind as i was going down this rabbit hole of so so on that point because i think it's actually a good one is that you know i don't know what a ski is made of Mm -hmm. i've been skiing my whole life 
I'm 45, so. <laughs> so, but yeah, for about 40 so years. So also 40 years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> roughly. So that kind of insight that you had. So what is what is in a ski and what is the opportunity there? In most skis, it's a mixture of petroleum-derived polymers. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of that would be polyethylene is the, the base. And that comes from effectively a big oil cracker, right? Mm-hmm. Like a big kind of steaming smokestack scene that like a a refinery yes right yeah a refinery that then goes off to another plant where chemistry is done to get to um, whether it's polyethylene like p-tex is i think the dominant source of ski bases Mm. and um, and then top sheets which um, can be things like a thermoplastic um, urethane Right. Um, the sidewalls, which are ABS plastic, and then there's there's wood in skis. For whatever reason, I just didn't think that was even a thing. Because yeah. you know, you like especially when you go to like a ski lodge or like you do like an Airbnb up in the See mountains, like ones. the old school yeah. wood skis on Absolutely. the ceiling. <laughs> like it's just like <laughs> I think it's a requirement. Yeah. But I was like, oh, that's funny. They don't do that anymore. They do, and there there are different kinds of woods that have been explored and tested and utilized right. depending upon what specific type of skiing you want to do. And then, of course, there's the metal edges on skis, but those are typically some of the materials. But a lot of it is polymer-based, is coming from petroleum. So you you take this course in 2015, and you're kind of looking at, oh, there's a lot of, like, basically, a lot of this can be traced back to oil, carbon-rich oil. How does that get you to the point where you're like, you know, actually, I'm going to start a company, you know, that's going to make an alternative out of algae? Because that's not a leap, you know, a lot of people are going to make. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I also had the professional experience of working at a company that was focused on utilizing microalgae to get to oil, like the oil that you saw in the lab when we were walking through the building. And And what company was that? That was a company called Solazyme. Some people may know, but most people don't. Solazyme was one of these like kind of very promising early kind of synthetic biology companies, right? It was kind of this new, it was seen as kind of like this new wave of making oil. Like, oh my God, this could be like this world changing thing. So what happened? I think it was world changing. I think it is world changing. I think we and others that today are in the space of whether you call it SynBio or the bioeconomy are building on the shoulders Mm. of that past experience. That past experience that I think was critical to enable us to get to where we are. And and specifically what Solozyme was set up to do was to explore utilizing microalgae to get to oil Mm. that could then be refined into things like diesel fuel or jet fuel, which Solozyme succeeded at doing at scale and at an attractive cost structure. But what we learned from Solozyme is that what we've seen occur in information technology mm-hmm. in the digital world, in going from technology development to impacting you know, a billion people in yeah. you know, less than 10 years, that works with information technology. We've seen it that. It works with ones and zeros. With ones and zeros. When it comes to things that involve supply chains, and economies of scale and where you're moving goods and products from point A to point B, 
the physics don't apply in right. those those industries. It's just harder, more expensive, takes longer. Harder, more expensive. And in order, like we built a commercial scale facility at Solazyme that today is owned and operated by the Dutch specialty chemical company Corbion. In order to hit the unit economics to competitively commercialize oil from microalgae, you have to run the facility at 100% utilization, which means that you have to sell it out. And if mm. you don't sell it out, then your cost structure is mm. much higher. And this is something that the petrochemical industry has long known to be true. Yeah. And when you go back and study the history of the petrochemical industry, the way that that challenge was overcome was by starting in markets that have premium pricing. And premium pricing correlates to specialty markets mm. where there's an element of um, that product being unique or where consumers are paying for performance. And every commodity chemical today from you know polyethylene or polystyrene or polyurethane started off in specialty applications, right. started off in these you know unique ways with premium pricing and over time grew into scale, hit economies of scale, supply chains got optimized, cost structure came down. And right. even to this day, you see the petrochemical industry, most of the investment in R&D is oriented around continuing to lower and optimize cost structure, not necessarily to create- It's in the industrial processes themselves. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Extracting every last penny right. of value from that barrel of crude oil. Right. So coming back to your question, that experience base and that perspective that with biotechnology, we could now access things that were truly unique and differentiated that would translate to performance properties, mm. not a hypothesis. We mm. knew this to be true based upon what we were seeing and experiencing in our own applications development efforts and with and through partners and customers. But where you would start small and have to grow into right. scale, that's what we learned in the experience at Solozyme. And, and what happened to the actual company? I can't, I... It was bought by Corbion. So Corbion right. bought all of the intellectual property team um, and then right. assets in the form of the manufacturing facility that's in Brazil. Right. And that was what year? That was 2016, 2017. I think the transaction actually closed in 2017. Right. But this happens often in kind of new industries or when there's a lot of innovation happening. It's like kind of what you said is you have the pioneers kind of show the way, but it doesn't quite work yet as a business, or at least one that's going to stand on its own two feet. Yeah. But then you have a whole generation of people like yourself who are like, oh, okay, now we understand X, Y, and Z, and we can understand kind of how to kind of reach the promised land in a different way. Let's have another go. That is true. And you have the natural continued evolution of the technology itself. Right. And this is something that has been studied pretty extensively. There's mm. work um, by Carlotta Perez. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Carlotta Perez has done a bunch of work looking at um, historical boom and bust cycles mm. with technology development, everything from the age of steel to you know information technology to the rise of oil. And, and you have what she describes as being a pretty consistent pattern mm. where a technology shows a lot of promise, where there's a massive influx of capital. Mm -hmm. 
where then that technology kind of confronts the realities of the world and craters. It's and like then, blockchain right now. Yeah, or you know, I think there's examples and things like quantum computing as well. Totally. And then you have people that pick up those pieces, whether they're incumbents, industrial yeah. incumbents, or whether there are people that were a part of the boom and bust cycle that pick up the pieces and then achieve escape velocity. And so in her thesis, there's a bit of pattern recognition. And mm. in the work that she published, I want to say it was around two, somewhere between 2010 and 2015, um, she was predicting that materials and biotechnology represented the next big mm. cycle. So when did you start this company? 2016. 2016. And what did you do at Solozyme? What was your job there? I led corporate development. Got you. And what was the end? Was it kind of algae-based kerosene or oil or what like what was it? What was the products that they were producing? Solozyme was focused on producing oil mm -hmm. and oil that could go to big impactful markets like transportation fuel. Gotcha. Renewable energy. Right like commodity chemical applications. It was a race to impact. Right. And so when you start this company, what's the thesis? The thesis is we need to make impact. Mm -hmm. That's why we named the company Checker Spot after an endangered butterfly. Like sustainability. I was wondering. Yeah. Checker, oh, okay. Sustainability is core to what we're doing. Right. The evolution is strategically focusing on high value markets to start and markets that would allow us to grow and to scale over time and to really have a fully integrated platform that mm -hmm. would allow us to get to parts and products and applications that fundamentally de-risk the adoption of the materials or the ingredients. Another whole set of observations lie in just the the pace mm. with which large established companies even consumer brands that talk a lot about having materials innovation capability there's an inertia there's a risk aversion mm -hmm. and in order to drive the adoption of new things i think you have to make it as frictionless yeah as risk free as possible and what what we had also learned at, at Solozyme and what we've carried forward with Checkerspot is having brand goes a long way mm. in demonstrating what's possible, especially with the market and engaging with consumers. So starting in premium specialty applications, growing into scale, a fully integrated platform and an emphasis on applications development right. are some pretty important evolutions based on the experience. Well, it's funny because it sounds like, and I have a question around synthetic biology and where it is right now, because last week we had on the podcast, Michael Selden from Finless mm -hmm. Foods. I mean, you guys are saying almost the exact same thing, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting because you guys are also under this broad umbrella of synthetic biology, let's call it. But they're going for bluefin tuna, yep. which is, you know, he doesn't have to get to $10 a pound. He has to get to 40 because 40, yeah. bluefin is a premium product. And so that path to get to that kind of to market is is much shorter, yep. at least initially. And then you can kind of scale up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the Tesla model. Just in terms of like stepping back, looking at synthetic biology broadly, 
and what Carlotta Perez was saying. Where are we in that? Because it feels like there's a, I'm sure there's more products in the market than I certainly know about, but it still feels pretty early. And just trying to think about this kind of continuum when you're talking about the innovation and when, I mean, the point at which you can kind of displace huge swathes of petroleum, for example, that feels a long way away. Mm-hmm. But also, it's probably going to happen in ways we don't expect. And just trying to understand kind of where we are, at least from where you sit in that synthetic biology kind of innovation curve. The analogy that I might draw would be to computing in the 1980s. Mm. And we're about the same age, so I think that this will probably resonate. But there was a point in time when we had video games like Pac-Man. We had the ability, like we saw our parents, you know, start to play with Excel spreadsheets and balance a checkbook, but we heard plenty of people that were really critical of that. Like, why do I need a computer to balance my checkbook the way I've been doing? It's fine. We had word processing and Apple in particular changed the game with the fonts Yep. and like just the visual, the emotive qualities of that. But at least for consumers, that was pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would have been pretty tough in even the late 1980s to imagine that we would all be walking around with computers, little, little supercomputer, little supercomputer in your pocket, and like taking pictures and your entire yeah. music library and movies, like right there at your fingertips. When I think about where are we today in the bioeconomy, there are a lot of applications that are coming from fermentation mm. from a biological process mostly and and probably dominated by food and nutrition yep. today but making a lot of headway in the personal care market making a lot of headway in materials applications and i think we're one of the companies that have started to breathe life into that the rate of change today is so much faster than it was in the 1980s yeah so i don't think it's going to take you know 25 years to see this become more ubiquitous. I think it's more like five to 10. I Mm. think as people see that the technology actually can scale, that there are viable business models where the carbon impact Mm. is significantly less in an environment where consumer brands are putting out really aggressive targets around carbon neutrality. I think the quote is 92% of oh, the S&P 500 have put out net zero targets. Yeah. And everybody's like, mm, how are you going to do that? There's like, no, there's no plan after that. It's just like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. And you're kind of like, that's ambitious. That's market need. That's yeah. demand. Yeah. And we have a technology that we know works. Mm. And we're not the only ones. It works at scale. And it's viable from a commercial perspective. As more people appreciate that and tune into that, I think we'll see coming back to Carlotta Perez, escape velocity. Right. Um, can we go backward? So where where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Like, ha- what was your, you've mentioned early days as an investment banker, way yeah. back in the 90s. 90s. Yeah, so where are you from? I was born in California, in Southern California. But, where? Uh, in Glendale. Oh, yeah. yeah. But my parents moved to the East Coast when I was a year old, so I don't remember anything from yeah. Glendale. And I grew up right outside of New York City in, I think, surprisingly rural part of New Jersey, the Garden mm-hmm. State, yep. um, a place called Holmdale. I had a glorious 
one week kind of moment with a girl from Homedale many, many moons ago when I was a teenager. And I was like, that was the first time I'd ever heard of Homedale. And then we had like, we became pen pals and the whole thing. I mean, it was like all very innocent and young, but it was like Homedale. I mean, yeah. Danny, you know I'm going to have to ask after we finish <laughs> yes, recording yeah, off, off, who that off, is. Because yeah. <laughs> Homedale's a small place. I know, I know. Chances are I may know her. <laughs> yeah, so you know Homedale was kind of defined by three things. One, a lot of the community commuted to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, two, it was agriculture and horses. And then three, Bell Laboratories. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, those things, as I look back, inescapably shaped yeah. my trajectory and like where I would go. Because Bell Labs is the kind of legendary yeah. center of innovation, et cetera. Yeah, and the house that I grew up in was you know, less than a mile away from oh, wow. Bell Labs. And did your parents work there? No, my parents didn't work there. Um, but it had a huge influence. Bell Labs had a huge mm. influence on the high school that I went to, which was uh, Homedale High School public school, but because of the community that was like included a lot of physicists and mm, mathematicians, mm, mm, mm. math and science was a huge focus. Right. And that was where I gravitated. I just loved math and science. And so by the time I was graduating from high school, I was already thinking about, you know, majoring in in science. Right. Although when I went off to college, I ended up deciding to be pre med. And that was my concentration. And because I was taking so many courses in science and math and getting bench experience in the lab, I was like, oh, I want to major in something else. And I ended up majoring in history. So I tried to complement right. you know, the sciences with Got you. the humanities. And then, of course, you ended up on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up on Wall Street. That was definitely the history influence. And you know, I went to Columbia, so I was in New York, and that had an influence and yeah, I mean, I finished the pre-med curriculum and, you know, took my MCATs and oh, I was wow. ready to apply, but I had um, reservation. I think if I was to be really straight up and blunt about it, I got scared. Yeah. And I got scared because two of the mentors that I was working with and for in their labs were leaving medicine. Mm. Um, I also had um, some family, well, my grandfather was leaving medicine mm. and there was a consistent refrain from all of them, which was they loved science, they loved medicine, they loved working with and treating people. They didn't love managed care. They yep. didn't love the business of medicine. And you know, for the amount of training and cost. That's not a small undertaking. It's not a small undertaking. You could find yourself, you know, in midlife rethinking your career and whether you love it and that scared me and so it scared me enough to say okay i'm gonna experience something different and think about this right and i had a choice to make and that choice was i was either gonna go um to officer candidate school and become a marine whoa or (laughs) i was gonna go to wall street and the decision came down to a truck stop in wyoming and obviously (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, I had this offer that I got at a payphone at a truck stop in Wyoming. And they're like, we need a decision. You got an offer from an investment bank. Yeah. Right. And so you'd gone through the whole interview process, yeah. all that malarkey. Yeah. Why was the choice between the Marines and Wall Street? Because that also feels like a pretty dramatic choice. Well, what they have in common is 
I never really use this language, but it almost like a, a, a tour. Like there's a, a timeline to it. I see. And I knew that I wanted to get a different experience and something that wasn't, you know, directly related to medicine. Right. And then there were unique aspects of both Wall Street and going to OCS that really resonated around like pushing me outside my comfort zone right. and learning some you know totally new things and and then creating a little bit of space to kind of reflect on how did I want to build a career and gotcha. what would define my life. You know, a lot of people just like take a year off and go traveling around. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of being like, I'm going to go into a really intense Wall Street job or I'm going to go officer candidate school, which yeah. also sounds quite intense. It's a good question. I didn't <laughs> think a lot about just traveling, just being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So you ended up going Wall Street route and then you did what, M&A or just were you like a kind of a grunt deep inside the machine doing? I was an analyst, a generalist. I worked on M&A and corporate finance. Yeah. So private placements as well as public offerings, um, but focused most of the deals that I was a part of were healthcare related. So this is 90s. Yep. Were you out before like the crazy dot-com era happened? This was 1997 to 2000. So there was definitely the emergence of the dot-com era, but we hadn't yet had that first implosion. Right, right, right. So then I left to focus on biotechnology. So I made the decision that I really loved both business and science yeah. and that experience was transformative. But I knew that I wasn't a career investment banker. Yeah. Loved working with really smart people. I actually liked the intensity and mm. you know the challenge of it. But it felt a lot like when a transaction closed – the train was leaving the station and I was left back at the station yep. thinking about, you know, what's coming next. Yep. And I really wanted to be a part of the continuity of building something and something that for me would have impact. And and then, as I mentioned before, a lot of what I was doing was healthcare or life sciences related, but not all of it. Mm. And I really wanted to get back to the science and, and biotechnology specifically. And so I ended up joining a company here in California, in Menlo Park, a company called Geron that mm. was focused on pioneering two things. One, looking at the pathophysiology of aging mm -hmm. and the connection between aging and cancer. A more specific focus around telomerase 
mm-hmm. and the role of telomerase in aging and cancer. And then second, um, they were focused on pioneering the field of cell therapy, looking at embryonic stem cells that could be derived into therapeutic cell types from osteoblasts and chondrocytes for orthopedic applications through to hepatocytes for liver disease to oligodendrocytes for spinal cord injury. Right. Um, And that area, I just, from a technical perspective, fell in love with and ended up spending the next eight years at Geron. Oh, wow. um, In corporate development initially. And then I did take some time off to go to business school. And during my second year of business school, I went back to Geron, but as the general manager for the company's subsidiary that was in the UK. Oh. This was 2004, 2005. Um, you may remember Dolly the Sheep that yep. was cloned yep, yep. at the Roslyn Institute. We had acquired what was called Roslyn Biomed that had that IP mm-hmm. and set up a subsidiary called Geron Biomed that was based in Edinburgh. And my job was to advance preclinical programs around cell therapy. Wow. And to raise capital and lead a team that was based in Edinburgh and in Birmingham, England. Wow. How long were you there? I was there for a little over four years. Oh, cool. Although I never lived there. Oh, I you was didn't? traveling back oh, and wow. forth between That's a lot of travel. It was yeah. I mean the travel was one of the big reasons that I like picked my head up and started thinking about other opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds pretty brutal. Yeah. And then you went to Solozyme. And then I left Geron in 2008 to right. join Solozyme. And at the time, Solozyme was um, a roughly 20, 25 people, something like that. And by the time you left? When I left, gosh, Solozyme was probably 250 people, right. maybe 350 if you included all of the folks in the joint venture in Brazil. Right, 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 right. And that gets us back to what y'all are doing here. And you've got the skis. When did you launch the skis? We launched the skis in July 8th, I believe, of 2019. When you think about that kind of the Tesla Roadster model, of all the things in all the world, why skis? A few reasons. One, because coming back to the narrative around Mm. the ski building workshop, what happened after that is I was intrigued and I started going to some of the outdoor recreation trade shows, mm. like Outdoor Retailer and ISPO in Munich. And that made a huge impression on me because one, like I've been to a lot of trade shows and a lot of you know industry conferences in my time, yeah. and especially in the life sciences and biotech. And I don't know if you've ever been to an outdoor retailer show. I have not. People are psyched and happy and smiling and fit and there's just like a really positive vibe and it's not you know well it's a bunch of people who like really love the outdoors and then all you have like a giant hall full of the best gear it it, it translates to (laughs) just a lot of positivity and enthusiasm and i'm like what is this world that i've just stepped into this is awesome yeah but more to the point i saw that all these brands were trying to create points of differentiation in the market Mm. and i mean think about it information technology has made it possible for people to create a brand and come to market with something with ease like the barriers to entry are Mm. lower than they've ever been historically or at least as far back as i can remember or have studied and 
that's created just a cacophony of mm. brands. So how do you fight for attention? Yeah. How do you fight for differentiation? And you know, thinking a lot about this, there's like three things. One is the story that you tell. Two is the way you build or you design your product. And three are the materials or the ingredients that you mm. utilize. So walking the floor, that's exactly what I saw. Mm. And I saw brands that were talking about materials that were in ski construction that had a different name, but it was the exact same material. Yeah, yeah. And that pointed to opportunity, both in terms of creating value for brands that would be customers because you had something that was actually differentiated. Mm. And second, I knew from past experience that we were now tapping into this white space of novel building blocks that biotechnology was unlocking, much in the way that, you know, when you think back to the pharmaceutical industry, biotechnology was opening up new modalities to treat diseases and injuries. And so the litmus test coming back to thinking about different application sets were, where could you find a category where it was emotive, where there were multiple applications of materials that mm. you could demonstrate performance and show that performance versus sustainability is a false choice and where those very same materials you could grow into adjacent markets where there's greater and greater levels of scale. And as you grow into scale, you're also achieving economies of scale. Your cost structure is coming down. Mm. You're opening up other markets that are more price sensitive. And the initial markets that you've started in are more profitable. Right. And so those were some, not all, but some of the features that it sounds so I was simple. Of. I'm sure it's been super easy. <laughs> it, it, it's easy to me. Like it's been a journey in my mind. I think that if you ask me what has been the most challenging thing, yeah. it's to communicate that vision to people in a way that they're like, oh, I get it. Mm. And and this is another really significant learning for me and something with companies that I'm advising, I really try to impress on them. You have to make it real. Like, there's no better alternative than the physicality yeah. of product. There's no better alternative than being in a position to show what yeah. you've done as opposed to talking about what's to come. And one of the you know, current areas of, I'll call it constructive criticism that we as a team have received as an organization is to lean a little bit more forward, to mm. talk about some of the things that are in the pipeline that we're working on. And there's a reluctance to do that, which I know may sound atypical, but that's born from just a perspective that, you know, leaning too far forward. You don't you get, want to be all talk. You don't want to be all talk. You want to show the substance. Yeah. yeah. And if you show the substance and have that credibility and people can really get behind what you're doing, then I think that's the best way to mitigate the challenge. I'm curious, so because obviously this place runs on venture capital funding, I'm saying Silicon Valley broadly. And if you go back to the first kind of clean tech, green tech boom, and all the funds that were started to kind of, you know, green up everything, they were disasters. And then it felt like Silicon Valley basically washed its hands of it and was just saying, it's too hard. I'll go back to ones and zeros, I'll go back to software, that's yeah. much easier. It feels very different right now because climate tech is 
for a whole bunch of reasons has just kind of grown up and matured and there's a ton of money. And I think we're probably in the midst of a cycle where there's going to be a lot of disasters, but there's also going to be a lot more successes. Mm -hmm. What was the reception when, especially coming from Soul Design, which is one of those kind of like big promise and it didn't quite work out? When you were going out to raise money for this idea, or I don't know if you had to initially, like what was the reception and how has that changed? Speaking about kind of venture capital and kind of the people who are putting the money behind these ideas. It was mixed. Mixed because there were some people that made a lot of money with mm. Solazyme. And there were some people that were similarly supportive because they appreciated, they recognized that the story wasn't ending when Solazyme was sold to Corbion and that Corbion was picking up the mantle and they had an incredible opportunity that they've really built on, like Corbion's mm. doing quite well. And so there was support. And then there were definitely people that would look at, you know, after Solazyme had gone public and you could kind of look at the price of the stock and say, well, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> that's not attractive. Yeah, yeah. And there was resistance. Mm -hmm. We didn't spend a lot of time trying to convince people that were resistant because like, we wouldn't have started the company had we not known that it scaled. Yeah. Had, it, had we not yeah. known and had the confidence that the model of engineering cells could be replicated um, and getting at that white space, like we just wouldn't, we would have done something different. At the time that we were raising the series seed, we had done some early applications work. You know, one example of that would be we had utilized algal oil to create a urethane that we had um, 3D printed some parts. Mm. And some folks got really excited about that. Mm. Like 3D printing is the future. Yeah. And this is amazing. And so when we would start talking about, well, you know, we're looking at skis, they're like, forget the skis, like focus on 3D printing. That's the thing. And if you can demonstrate, you know, printing this part with these physical properties, HP is going to buy you. And, right. you know, yeah, 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 yeah. everybody's going to make a lot of money. Go do that. Or, you know, another thing that we heard a lot was because we were admitted into the Illumina Accelerator, mm -hmm. which was really important for us. And we did whole genome sequencing for a bunch of our lead strains. And, oh, wow. Uh, there was an immense amount of data, and it was at a time when artificial intelligence and machine learning was, you know, really just put checkerspot.ai. Yeah, that's exactly good. Right. And we had an investor <laughs> that was like, I love what you guys are doing, but if you, you know, just focus on software, you know, you'll get a richer valuation, we'll write a bigger yeah, check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, we're yeah. like, that's not what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm trying to draw on those examples to say that. We, we were really building off of a deep conviction around the value of the molecular biology, the ability to scale, to grow into scale, the vertically integrated nature of the platform and focusing on applications as a path to impact. Right. And making it as physical and making it as real as possible for people to see that it's not a hypothesis, that it's not a story, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that it's substantive. It's not a science experiment. That's right. And how much have you guys raised now? We've now raised about $100 million. And how far does that get you? Well, we have plenty of runway for the next two to three years. Oh, okay. So in aggregate that, you know, gosh, that takes us to eight or nine years. Right. Since the beginning. Right, right. 
has it gotten easier in terms of like telling the story? I mean, obviously you're actually producing stuff. You have products in the market that makes life easier. But I guess I'm also interested in just the kind of the temperature of, you know, the kind of venture capital world, the interest in, I mean, because this is kind of, you could call this climate tech. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, it is, right? Yeah. So like, I'm really interested because there just seems there's this, been this flood of money in, right? And I feel like already we're starting to see, at least on the institutional side, the big, very big, big guys, a little kind of tiptoeing backward. Mm-hmm. Like we have BlackRock. Yeah saying two years ago like the next thousand unicorns will be in climate tech yeah and esg is now a core factor in how we invest Mm -hmm. and then stanley fink the guy who said all this now is being like well esg isn't next actually totally core if it doesn't make the right you know it's kind of it's like it goes back to the idea of the the theoretical running into the practical yeah what is your sense of that in terms of where we are right now and where it's going? Because I think it's a really interesting time that you've had a lot of new funds, a lot of money, a lot of talent flowing in. And then it feels like there's going to be a next round or a couple next rounds of this next 12 to 24 months when the world is a lot harder place. Yeah. And what that looks like and how that shakes out. Well, one is that I do think that the world is going to be a lot harder before it gets better. And... I think the the main motivator are consumers. Mm. And I don't think that we're going to see consumers walk back from recognizing that there is a climate crisis. I think that you know with population growth we're also seeing clearly that there are huge opportunities to improve the agroeconomic complex and there are huge opportunities within food and nutrition as well, huge needs. I don't think that that's going anywhere. And I think in the context of ESG as an asset class, I think back to the early 2000s. Remember when we were talking about dot-com and mm-hmm. internet companies, e-commerce? There was a point in time when investment banks and you know the big consulting companies had e-commerce coverage groups. Remember that? Yep. But it didn't take long. I would say it was by about 2005 that... If you were a company in business, you had a digital strategy. Mm-hmm. There was no e-com anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's where we're going in the context of sustainability. I think if you're a company in business, you're thinking about supply chain resilience. You're thinking about you know, where are your materials and your ingredients coming from and what are the externalities. I think the coming SEC disclosure rules yeah are going to be a huge market mechanism to catalyze this. I think that when we just take a step back and contemplate innovation generally, and innovation as a historical barometer Mm. for economic growth and development, that this is one of the most interesting areas. The bioeconomy is one of the most interesting areas because we're at that zone of getting into escape velocity. We've passed the boom and bust of the hype. And you've passed, it feels like it's with increasing kind of frequency or kind of you're reaching a critical mass of companies that have moved past the science experiment phase. That's right. And now it's a question of scale, which is also, which is not to be minimized. That is hard. Very hard. 
but it's also a very different challenge than actually just proving that the thing works. That's exactly right. And you know, the recent executive order from the White House and stimulating the bioeconomy, I think, is an exemplification of that. Because yes, it's true that the bioeconomy can help around climate change and around sustainability and around food and food security, energy security, all of these things. But it's also about job creation. It's yeah. about resilient supply chains. It's about economic development and global competitiveness. And I think we're seeing, and, and it's definitely captured in some of the nationalist rhetoric globally, mm-hmm. that the world may have over-indexed in globalization, that we're seeing some repatriation. You see that a lot in like, um, it feels like, you know, this is going to be like the lithium century. Mm-hmm. And like trying to figure out like, okay, this is actually quite vital and if we're moving away from oil, then we also also we need to kind of figure out how we source the most vital kind of element of the next iteration of the, of energy. Absolutely. And so there's a ton of thinking and energy right now of like, all right, well, how are we going to source all the lithium we need for all the batteries, for all the electricity? That's everything can be running everything. Yeah. For example, and it feels like it's the same with lots of different stuff. It is, and I think that we're likely to see maybe not a tilting of the playing field, but more of a leveling of the playing field where I don't think that we'll see the same degree of you know subsidies and economic support going to the petrochemical industry. Mm. And I think that from a policy perspective, that's required. But if I take a step back from my role as CEO of Checkerspot and just think of as a part of the electorate, as a citizen, mm. I wouldn't advocate this concept of like, we can just turn on a dime. Like the consequence of moving from petroleum immediately would have a huge economic impact. It would be like a world war. Yeah. Like this is many civil wars. Absolutely. This is a weaning, but in order to, it goes back to that concept of de-risking. As we show these use cases, as we show the substance, as we show that it's real, then I think that that, can those wheels can get set into motion. Yeah. And I think that that's where we are. And that will be an enormous accelerant mm. in a transition towards a post-petroleum world. Yeah. What was your worst day of work? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes people have it like they know immediately and sometimes be like, well, there's been, you know, especially in startups, there's been a lot of bad days. You know, it's like, which is the worst? Yeah, I, well, I know what it is immediately. I could talk about it on an abstract basis. Okay. Um, it was a personnel issue. and mm, It often is. Yeah. It was, um, you know, an individual that had just been really struggling, mm. um, having a hard time with life in general, and that manifested in a dangerous way mm. within the company. And that, yeah, it was just hard on behalf of the team, as someone that cared deeply for the individual, um, that was a really bad day. It's, I don't know, if, it's not funny, but it's interesting that, because it's a question I ask often, and sometimes people just immediately go to, well, it's something about the technology network or whatever, but more often than not, it it's about personnel. It's about an issue that someone has with somebody. Yeah. For me, it kind of re- redoubles this idea that you know companies are just groups of people, and that's very hard to manage. Well, it's interesting to me that 
you uh, you name it because Danny in the Valley, right? We, <laughs> we we love to think about how amazing and cool our tech stack is, mm-hmm. and you know the big important markets and the impact. But at the end of the day, it's not about the intellectual property, and it's not about the products and the markets, like or the companies and the brands. It all comes down to people. Yeah, and it's been noteworthy that in you know the 25 years of my career that is often not only neglected mm-hmm. but the concept of leadership and the concept around management science it's not viewed as a science yeah yeah it's like oh that's easy and often remarked that the people that may say oh leadership is easy or oh you know i've got it dialed Mm. are exactly the people that you should (laughs) go in the other direction from (laughs) and that is all the time we have i want to thank charles for taking the time uh this week i want to thank you all for sparing your time to listen as ever and also thank you for the ratings the reviews for telling your friends and neighbors about the pod spreading the word etc and that is it for me this week i will be writing about big tech and the kind of the meltdown that is coming in that whole world so if you're interested in that do check out thetimes.co.uk that will be there you can find me on twitter at danny fortson email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk that is it Take care of yourselves. Have a fabulous, fabulous weekend. And hopefully you have already figured out what you're going to be for Halloween. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.